what you know, you can't explain. But you feel it. You felt it your entire life that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. So said Morpheus in the 1990 film, uh, 1999 film The Matrix. Um, that's one of my uh, favourite films, and I can use those references again, because there's a new Matrix film coming out. But he's right, isn't he? Deep down, we know that there's something wrong, something broken in our world. We know how things should be, but they don't match up with our experience of how they are. We know, don't we, put in simple terms, that the goodies should win, and the baddies should lose. But it doesn't always work out like that, does it? Baddies sometimes win, goodies sometimes lose. And that sort of situation can really get to us, can't it? It can really make us feel the wrongness of the world. It's really got to ASAP over the last couple of Psalms that we've been looking at. In Psalm 73, he was close to stumbling because of the prosperity of the wicked, he said. So, bad people who do well. In Psalm 74, he pleads with God about the destruction of his people. So he says in verse 1, O God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. He's struggling because God's people don't seem to be doing well. God's enemies prosper. God's people suffer. So what's going on? Why doesn't God do something? Well, whoever compiled the Psalms put this psalm with the previous ones to answer that question. We've already had hints in the previous Psalms of what the answer is, but now Asaph spells it out clearly for us. Will God cast off his people forever? No. In fact, this is all part of God's plan. God is not unaware of what's happening, and there will be a reckoning. That's what we see in this psalm. Now, if you're here exploring what the Christian faith has to say, you might find some of the language of this psalm and some of the language that we're going to use this morning a bit shocking. It refers to unbelievers as wicked and believers as righteous. So let me just give a couple of provisos to start. It's not saying by that that believers are morally superior to non-believers, as though Christians have an excuse to look down their noses at other people. In fact, a Christian is someone who has acknowledged that far from being the solution, they're actually part of the problem. It's not that we're superior and need celebrating, it's that we're sinful and we need forgiving. So a Christian is not someone who is morally superior, but someone who has asked for forgiveness. Someone who has been declared righteous by God. That means given the non-guilty verdict by God, not because they're innocent, but because someone else has paid the price, Jesus Christ. So all of us must stand before God as judge. And that is our first point. God will judge. Have a look at verses 2. Uh, to uh, eight with me. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment putting down one and lifting up another. 
For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. I'm going to deal with this passage a little bit out of order. We're looking at this middle bit because we need to make it clear that as we talk about judgment, what we mean as we talk about judgment is this theme that goes throughout the whole of the psalm. What Asaph is talking about here is a reckoning, a redress, a rectifying, a resetting of the scales, putting things back in order, a repairing, a resolving, a renewing, putting down the wicked and lifting up the righteous. The image used in verse 3 is of God grabbing the world before it finally falls over. You know when you sort of go past a table and you knock a cup or a vase and it sort of wobbles? Well, God grabs it, holds it in place, sets it back in the right place, steady on its, on its, uh, on its table. That's what God is promising to do with the world. That is, to some extent, what God is already doing with the world. God is promising to put things back as they should be. As deep down, we know that they should be. Now, in the context of what we've seen in the previous weeks, we might be thinking this is just talking about the end of the exile of God's people in Babylon and their judgment in the Babylonian Empire. So they've been sent far away, well, God had promised to bring them back. Perhaps there's something of that. And the cup imagery that we've seen in verse 8 is used around the time of the exile for God's anger. So it's the cup of God's wrath and anger in Jeremiah 25. God sends Jeremiah to go make the nations drink this cup that he's bringing because of their their treatment of God's people. In Isaiah, Israel are given this cup to drink for a while in their exile, and then it's given to their tormentors, the Babylonians. So you'll find on the back of your notice sheet, Isaiah 51, 22-23. Thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from you, from your hand, the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath, you shall drink no more. And I will pour, I will put it into the hand of your tormentors, who have said to you, bow down, that we may pass over, and made you lie, uh, <clears throat> made your back like the ground, and like the street for them to pass over. Do you see there, the cup imagery is, is Israel, but then it's passed on to Babylon. For them to, to have a taste of God's judgment and anger. It is that, and we see that, don't we, in history, that that does happen. But it's bigger than that too. Look again at verse 8 of our passage. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to its dregs. All the wicked of the earth will drink this cup that the Lord has prepared for them. All the wicked will drain it to its dregs, drink it down to the bottom of the cup. And as the theme progresses in the Bible, this begins to take on a more universal dimension as we see it here. Jesus speaks of taking the cup. In the Garden of Gethsemane, just before he goes to the cross, he says, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not I will, but as you will. Jesus is saying that by going to the cross, he's going to drink the cup of God's wrath there in place of his people. The theme then reaches its conclusion in Revelation, as with the psalm, when all the wicked drink of the cup of God's wrath. So Revelation 14, 9-11. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on its forehead or on his hand, 
He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever, and they shall have no rest day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Now we haven't got time to go into uh, the mark of the beast this morning, but in Revelation you're either sealed by the spirit on your forehead, or you're marked by the beast. It actually goes back to Deuteronomy 6 and 11, which if you were here last Sunday evening, we looked at Deuteronomy, where where God's commandments was to be bound to the wrist and to the forehead. That's where God's word should be, but here it's being replaced by something else. Either way, the cup is now drunk by individuals, not nations, as God's wrath is poured out in judgment. What Asaph is being told in, though, the reason that he's being told is that he's being told that God is not ignoring the situation. He's being told that God will step in. There will be a reckoning. There will be justice currently where there seems to be none. But in the absence of justice now, the problem is that the people are starting to look elsewhere for this redress, for this rebalance. So I'll look at verses 6 and 7 again. For not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifted up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Judah and Israel, all the way through their history, were always looking for help from the surrounding nations when they felt that God wasn't doing his bit, so to speak. They would go to the other nations to help them see justice done against their enemies who had wronged them, the other nations. But ignoring what God had said, that he was the one there to put their trust in. Instead, they put their trust in other nations to redress the balance. And it never went well for them, let's put it lightly. But we too can make the same mistake, can't we? It's so easy, isn't it, to want the score, every score, settled now. We want people to know that we've been wronged. We want people to overcome, uh, sorry, we want God's people to overcome persecution and come out on top now, don't we? It's tempting to take the matters into our own hands. Or if not in our own hands, then at least seek them in our own hearts. We seek revenge on others. Paul writes in Romans 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's another quote from Deuteronomy there by Paul. We are not the judge. God is the judge. We do not bring the final reckoning, God does. Now it's not wrong to seek justice in the here and now. But if we're doing it because we don't believe that God will actually do it one day himself, then we've got problems. We don't need to exhaust justice now, because God will judge. There's a day coming when he will set it all right. And he will do it far better than we ever could. We're partial, aren't we? We make mistakes in judgment, but God does not. God judges in verse 2 with equity, rightly, evenly, fairly, directly. The word carries all those sorts of meanings. God is the perfect judge, and he will judge perfectly. But when? When will he judge? That's the heart of it, isn't it? When are you going to do it, Lord? We see that in our second heading. God will judge in his own timing. God will judge 
and his own timing. Have a look again at verses 2 to 5. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high, or speak with haughty neck. This is the part of the psalm that, like uh, the other ones in book three, sort of has its links back to Leviticus. We said that the books of the uh, psalms, the five books, in some ways can look like the five first books of the Bible. Here it has to do with God's appointed time. So the word is used appointed there 45 times in the book of Leviticus. Sometimes of appointed congregations, sometimes of appointed feasts, sometimes of appointed seasons. And so Leviticus 23 verse 4, these are the appointed, that's literally the feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations. You shall proclaim them at the appointed time. Again, just appointed for them. The point is that in Leviticus, God sets the times. That's the whole idea all the way through. God is the one telling you when to do this. He appoints the seasons. He appoints the times. And the psalm uses this word to speak about God's appointed time for this reckoning. The previous psalm asked, How long, O Lord, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Well, here is the answer. No, not forever. This will end at God's appointed time, at God's perfect time. We said last time how hard it must have been for them stuck out in exile, not knowing whether or when it was going to end. I think we can appreciate that a little bit better when we have had months of lockdown and things like that, never quite knowing when that was going to end. You saw that feeling of it going on forever. It can be hard, it can't, when you can't see the schedule. Have you ever been in that situation where you're at a meeting or something and you really don't know how long it's going on, what point the agenda you're on, and it can just feel awful, can't it? But God encourages Asaph here. There is a schedule. There is an end date. There will be a time when this is all over. And more than that, I, God, picked the time. I picked the date. Now, he doesn't tell Asaph here what the date is, does he? He could have done. He told Jeremiah how long the exile would be. But he doesn't send him a save the date card, does he? He doesn't tell him here. He just tells him it's in hand. I've set the time. What Asaph has to do is trust God. God says I've got it in hand. And he's got to trust that God has got it in hand. And at God's perfect timing, the reckoning will come. And as we said last time, that's true for us in our situation, isn't it? Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 24. But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For as those in the days of Noah before the flood were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus is coming back. <coughs> He's coming back to judge. The time is set, the hour is coming, but we don't know when it is. 
Even Jesus, when he was here on earth, didn't know what it was going to be. What does Jesus say to do? Sorry, what does God say to do in the meantime, though, while we wait? We get a clue there, don't we, in verses 4 and 5. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. The wicked may look strong and powerful now, but God is saying they can't stop this. They don't even know when this is coming. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, said Jesus. It won't announce itself. You won't be able to work out when it will be just before. So do you see here that for the wicked, this means there's no room to boast. They can't lift up their horn, a sign of strength in the Old Testament. You can't strut around like a rhino, if you sort of imagine a rhino with a big sort of horn on its head. Because whilst they might think that they're Mr. Big Shot, actually not. God is. They're not in control of what's going on. God is. And God is not required to send them a memo with the date of their judgment. A time is appointed. But how humbling is this? We can't even work out when it is. We don't know. But God is going to bring them to a rude awakening when the appointed time arrives. So that's for the wicked in the, in the time in between. But what about believers? Well, that brings us to our last point. The judge will vindicate the righteous. The judge will vindicate the righteous. Have a look at the heading in uh, verse 1 again, and then down to verses 9 and 10. To the choir master, according to not destroy, a psalm of Asaph, a song. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks, for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. And then down to verse 9. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. The righteous here give thanks to God. They sing praises to the God of Jacob. Now I think this is one of the hardest things to get our heads round in this psalm in a way. This actually, despite all the judgment language, is actually a psalm with thanksgiving. That's how it starts and ends. Asaph is glad that those who have opposed God, those who have oppressed his people, those who have rebelled and not sought forgiveness, that one day the score will be settled. That they won't get away with it. That finally the baddies, if you like, will get their comeuppance. Asaph rejoices in that. And even when he speaks of his wondrous deeds that they recount, well, the wondrous deeds language is normally linked with the Exodus. What was the Exodus? What did they celebrate there? What did they sing about? Well, not just that they've been rescued. But in the Song of Moses, they sing about the horse and his rider who's been thrown into the sea. God didn't just rescue his people, he brought judgment on his enemies. And I think in this life we'll never quite get our hearts and our heads around this. But possibly that's because we've not known persecution as previous generations of believers have. But it's actually been really hard when people that you know have taken the lives of your friends and family. That said, in the New Testament, often when it speaks of our enemies, it speaks of people. Oh, sorry, not of people, but of death and hell and sin. We don't struggle against flesh and blood, but we do struggle against those things. 
And at least, at the very least, we can celebrate the victory over them, can't we? Over death, hell and sin. And rejoice and give thanks that God has triumphed victoriously over them on the cross. And in this life, we look for those who oppose God to turn to God, don't we? We look for our enemies' destruction in them becoming our friends. As Abraham Lincoln once said, Do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? But we must be clear, if they do not turn now, if they will not turn to God now, if you will not turn to God now, it says that there will be a cutting down. Maybe not in this life, but in the one to come. And in one sense, that's true of all who set themselves up against God in this life, isn't it? They're cutting down. I mean, where are the persecutors of the past? The big Neros and those guys? Where are the great atheists who have opposed the church? Where are the mockers and scoffers of Asaph day? Well, they're in the grave, aren't they? All their strength, all their gusto, all their hatred is now nothing. Their horns are cut off and now all that's left for them is that great reckoning. But not so the righteous. Have a look at verse 10 again. All the horns of the wicked are cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Now there's some ambiguity in this verse, because the word for wicked there is plural, more than one. But the word for righteous is singular. Now it could be that the righteous there is, is, is viewed as a whole, so sort of one, one group. Or it could refer to just one person. In which case it would be, all the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous one shall be lifted up. The amazing thing is that whichever it is actually in Christ, both are true, aren't they? He is indeed the righteous one, who is powerful and strong. The one who was vindicated by his resurrection, who was lifted up, both on the cross and at the resurrection and ascension. And as his people, we share in that vindication and lifting up. So Ephesians 2, verses 5 and 6, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. The Bible says that we're now seated spiritually with Christ. Because he was lifted up, we are lifted up because we belong to him, we're in him. So whether it's the righteous or the righteous one, we will be lifted up. But it's worth remembering that here we're righteous not by virtue of our own goodness, but by faith, by trusting in Jesus. We are lifted up because he is lifted up and we have put our trust in him. That connects us to him. So we will be vindicated, because he was vindicated. But whilst we're raised spiritually with Christ, our final vindication won't come until that day of reckoning. We have to wait, don't we? Patiently. And until then, we live in a messed up world. Morpheus from the Matrix was right. There is something wrong with the world. Our world is broken. Baddies will still win in our lifetime. Goodies will lose. Good things will happen to bad people, and bad things will happen to good people. But while we're going through that, we can remember that it won't always be like that. 
one day, at God's appointed time, all things will be set right. There will be that reckoning. All the wicked will be cut down. So what matters is, where are you with that one? The righteous one, not the one as in Neo from the Matrix, but Christ. Are you on his side? Have you got faith in him? Have you been lifted up with him spiritually? Because on that question rests your eternal destiny. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that in a broken world you understand our frustrations. Father, you understand what it's like to be accused of something and for it not to be true. Father, you understand what it's like to be persecuted because in your son you were persecuted. Father, we pray uh, that you would help us be patient. Father, pray that you would help us look to that day when there will be a reckoning, when all things will be set right. Father, help us to wait for it patiently now, not always seeking to exhaust justice. And Father, help us to turn, uh, help our friends and our family and everyone, Father, turn to you in the meanwhile, that they too might enjoy that lifting up and not be cut down. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.